It is 5 o'clock, it's 5 o'clock, it's 5pm in Salford. How are you this Thursday afternoon? It might not even be afternoon where you are. Good to be with you, thanks for finding me again. The Richie Allen Show, I'm Richie Allen, with you till 7 o'clock. I have two very interesting guests lined up for you today. I'll tell you about them now, in a moment, time in a moment. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, a little bit later on in the program, I'll be joined by Mina Jew. I think it's Jew, D-E-W, it might be Dew. Really, really nice lady, interesting lady. She is behind Class Action COVID UK. She wants to hear from people who are injured by a COVID jab. They are assessing cases of severe vaccine injury and they're looking at taking a class action lawsuit, effectively, case, legal case, against those responsible for injuring people with these unproven, untested jabs. So Mina will be on the programme a little bit later on. Before that, I'll be joined by uh, Dr. Stuart Waiton, PhD. He's an old friend, I suppose you could say, of the programmes. Great guy, always interesting. A senior lecturer in sociology and criminology, Aberté University. He's an author and journalist. He's very interested in the overregulation and policing of everyday life. So we'll run through a few stories with Stuart. He's also a board member of the Scottish Union for Education. That is Thursday's programme. Well done for getting through, well, nearly getting through another week. Hey, listen, Jerry Springer has passed away. Now, once I suppose a generation, a cultural or a television phenomenon happens you've got to say the Jerry Springer show was a phenomenon wasn't it it was probably the first of its kind we did have daytime talk shows in the United States before that and in the UK and even in Ireland remember live at three in Ireland what's 30 feet long and smells of piss yes the front row at live at three you've got to be Irish to get that gag doesn't matter but Jerry Springer was a phenomenon. And I have to say, now, you know, I've never been one of those, you know, I've never been one of those lefties. I, I haven't been. But I kind of felt it was a very exploitative programme. You know, listen, people have free will and people get to decide what they do and don't do. But I always felt that the Springer show basically took advantage of people from very poor backgrounds and sometimes unsoph- unsophisticated people. That's That's not saying unintelligent people now but unsophisticated people. And we see a bit of that with Jeremy Coyle. People being taken advantage of and they really had no idea just how embarrassing it was going to be for them. Now, he came across as a very charismatic guy off the Jerry Springer show. I saw him on TV many a time being interviewed and he came across a very charismatic bloke. He was a politician, wasn't he, at one time. But he's passed away aged 79. Worth, worth marking because the Springer show certainly broke the mould, didn't it, in terms of TV and was a cultural phenomenon for a time. I mean, they showed it here. They showed it in Ireland when it was um, at its peak in the 90s. Anyway, Jerry Springer, yeah, God rest him. Kay Burley this morning on Sky News. I tweeted about this. I also put something on Facebook about it and I dropped it into richieallen.co.uk. I definitely nearly choked on my orange juice this morning. (laughs) <laughs> with uh, Kay Burley, the gift that keeps on giving. You you will know that it is being claimed at the moment 
that Spain is in the grip of a heat wave. The temperatures in April higher than normal. Children are being educated outside in Madrid. You're hearing all these funny stories, right? So Kay Birdie had a report from one of her colleagues in Spain. They threw back to the studio to Kay, back to Kay live. She then turned to her climate dashboard and the rest is, well... It's just classic Kay Burley. And with parts of the world experiencing extreme... Listen to the pathos. Listen to the acting. The voice has got to get all serious and all sad. And with parts of the world experiencing extreme weather conditions, let's have a look at the impact of climate change on the planet with our climate dashboard. Using an awful lot of gas this morning. Aren't we? Using lots of gas this morning. Aren't we? Um, <laughs> renewables at uh, 17%. Um, nuclear just down to below 15% this morning. Um, global warming since 1880 is up 1.27 degrees. Remember, of course, always that um, two degrees, two and a half degrees three degrees, oh, it's all over. If that happens, uh, total <laughs> CO2 emissions in millions of tonnes in real time. What was that, Meantime, What was that? Remember, of course, always that um, two degrees, two and a half degrees, three degrees, oh, it's all over. If that happens... It's all over if that happens. Comedy gold. They're ramping up the climate stuff, aren't they? They're ramping up the climate stuff. That's not the first time you've heard me say that, but they really are on a daily basis. Hey, Andrew Bridgen and Lee Anderson. Andrew Bridgen is a former Conservative Party MP. He has recently had the whip withdrawn. In fact, no, he had the whip withdrawn from him several weeks ago. But this week he was basically formally kicked out of the Conservative Party and told not to show up to any more parties. Don't show up to any more of our Conservative parties, you backstart. Why? Well, it's because during a COVID vaccine harms debate, he mentioned that an Israeli doctor had compared the COVID jab harms to the Holocaust. In fact, what it, what it is believed, it, it is believed that the Israeli doctor said that the COVID jabs are the worst thing to happen to humanity since the Holocaust. So he was basically passing on the comments of a medical man and he's been kicked out of the party for that, has Andrew Bridgen. Now, allegedly, he was at a cafe in Westminster yesterday. Andrew Bridgen. Also there was Lee Anderson, the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party. Lee, 30p Lee Anderson, who apparently was having coffee with Nana Akua. Now, Nana Akua is a presenter for GB News. Listen, we know this. This is old stuff. They're all in the same gang, right? Journalists having coffee and hobnobbing with politicians they are supposed to be holding to account, yeah. Well, of course, Lee Anderson has his own programme on, on GB News. So Andrew Bridgen wasn't happy and apparently made a beeline for Lee Anderson and had, had a go at him because he was kicked out of the Conservative Party. Bridgen then returned to his table. Then Lee Anderson stood up to defend his honour, crossed the cafe and had a heated exchange with Andrew Bridgen. It's believed that somebody offered somebody out for a fight, apparently. Uh, probably would have been like Colin Firth and Hugh Grant and Bridget Jones. Remember that? That's how people like... That's how That's how white-collar dipsticks fight, by the way. City guys. That, I've seen it myself as, as a nightclub DJ, as a guy who's been around pubs and nightclubs my entire life. When these city boys have a fight, just watch Colin Firth, Hugh Grant and Bridget Jones. This is how they fight, right? Anyway... 
a caller, a pundit phoned into LBC Radio to make a very reasonable point. To say that folks often make comparisons that are wild exaggerations. People are always doing that. And because people make wild exaggerations when making comparisons, everybody else should just get on with it, not get so wound up. Silly comparisons. And Andrew Bridgen says the caller shouldn't have been kicked out of the Conservative Party for quoting an Israeli doctor who said the jabs were the worst thing to happen to humanity since the Holocaust. So James O'Brien, the virtue-signalling little pussy boy that he is, wasn't having this and wouldn't just allow the caller to, to make this point. You know, it's, are we really kicking people out of political parties for making silly comparisons? By the way, and this is absolutely true, I had a dream the other night that Jimmy Cranky, the real Jimmy Cranky, not Nicholas Sturgeon, the real one, um, set fire to James O'Brien's beard while he was on air. That's the truth. I really had that dream. I'm not saying this uh, to get a cheap laugh. I, I, I don't know what it's about. If you have ever explored the meanings of dreams, let me know. What does that mean? Um, in my dream, James O'Brien was telling lies, as he does pretty much every day, Monday to Friday. And underneath the mixing desk was Jimmy Cranky. That's Janine, by the way. The, the, the real Jimmy Cranky. And had a little Bic lighter and set fire to his beard while he was lying his ass off. That was my dream. Apparently I woke up with a, with a massive uh, smile on my face, apparently. Anyway, this guy rings in, right, and says it's ridiculous that Bridgen would be axed for making a silly comparison. Let's have a listen. You're sounding very silly for someone who c came on claiming not to know anything about vaccines. What, the vaccines? I, don't, I didn't take the vaccine, so I don't personally care, but what I'm saying is... He's making a no, comparison. No, no, this is a, such a silly to, conversation. No, no, it's not. No, silly. it really is. No, well, I am. Le I am letting you finish. I'm just okay, saying in advance for anyone who's okay. not paying attention okay. how silly it is. Okay, well, let me tell you where I stand. Okay, I think. Yeah. I think he was making a comparison to the Holocaust. Well, he was quoting someone order, else actually, but yeah, you crack on. Okay, to the Holocaust in order yeah. to assinuate how serious he felt. Hey, by the way, can we just hear back? the acknowledgement from James O'Brien that Andrew Bridgen was quoting somebody else, because this is important, you know? He was making a comparison to the Holocaust. Well, he was quoting someone order. else, actually, but yeah. you crack on. Okay. Right, so O'Brien acknowledges that Andrew Bridgen was, in fact, quoting somebody else, and in this case, it's an Israeli doctor, right? To the Holocaust, in order yeah. to assinuate how serious he felt the vaccine was yes. the harm it was doing. Yes, so you're absolutely right. To, That's why he's an idiot. That's why he's an idiot, says O'Brien. Andrew Bridgen is an idiot for mentioning that an Israeli doctor said that the jabs were causing as much harm to humanity or they are the biggest, the, the worst thing to happen to humanity since the Holocaust. Bridgen is an idiot for referencing a doctor, says O'Brien. Yeah, he's gone to the extreme. Yes. But people do that all the time. Well, they, they make don't really. I don't think they but do. To say, Not members of Parliament. Like, Can you think yeah, of another member of Parliament making an extreme example about the Holocaust? Yeah, well, maybe not the Holocaust, anyway. I don't know. But no, but I think you need to know. You need to have one... Because you say people do it all the time. Well, people make extreme comparisons. Yes, go on, like what? To try to, well, I, I can't think off the top of my head. Well, like, do you want me to wait? Saying, Shall I well, wait? Well, not really. Please well, don't wait. Because I well, I have to wait, because otherwise I have to well, ignore you what you said. Well, OK, OK, well, you don't have to ignore what I but, said. But if you've I got no that, evidence okay, for it. Right, OK, OK, let me give you one evidence. Yeah, go on. The Ukraine war. Oh, the no. Ukraine war. Oh, boy, is no, it a full no, moon? No, let me just say this. Let me say this. The Ukraine war 
is should have not done single as people. extreme as the Second World War. Right. No, but that's not a ludicrous comment. No, but, people, but it is a ludicrous comment. People in Parliament, and in fact people on national radio in this country, have constantly, since the invasion of Ukraine last year, I've heard many a reference to the Second World War. I've heard many a reference to World War Two. Oh, I can't believe that Europe is at war again. Europe hasn't been at war since uh, 1945. So people have been making that comparison all the time. You know, likening what's happening now to the, the possible outbreak of war in Europe. So the guy is quite right. But lost in all of this, of course, is that Andrew Bridgen could lose his, his gig for, for referencing a quote that was made by an Israeli doctor who believes the jabs are causing harm. That's what's lost in all of this. It's 12 and a half minutes past the hour. Let's stay with the Holocaust just for a minute, but not for too long. Don't panic your little heads, because you know that the Labour MP Diane Abbott has had the whip removed and cannot sit in Parliament as a Labour MP. She hasn't yet been kicked out of the party. There is an investigation ongoing, apparently. Diane Abbott seemed to create a kind of a hierarchy of racism in a letter she wrote to The Observer, which is The Guardian's Sunday newspaper. And in it, she acknowledged that Jews have suffered prejudice. She certainly didn't deny the Holocaust or deny Jewish suffering in Nazi Germany. But she seemed to say that really black people get it worse than anybody. Now, you might think that's ludicrous and... Maybe I think that's ludicrous. I don't know what I think, really. But we, we, we shouldn't be firing people or, you know, sending them to Coventry or outcasting them for saying something that, you know, is mildly silly or maybe not mildly silly. Right, so Keir Starmer, then the leader of the Labour Party, was on Good Morning Britain this morning and it came up, Diane Abbott, and what might happen to her. First, let me acknowledge what um, Diane Abbott has had to put up with for many, many years mm. because I think she's... Um, probably suffered more abuse, obviously racial abuse, than any other um, person in public life, certainly any other politician. And that is terrible, and it mm. should be condemned and called out. Um, and, and, and she should be supported in that. Um, but alongside that, or, you know, despite that, what she said in a letter on Sunday is to be condemned. Mm. Um, it is suggesting a sort of hierarchy of racism, which I do not accept. And I, the first thing... But, I... but isn't that fine, though? Isn't that fine that you don't accept that there is a hierarchy of racism? Diane Abbott is a woman of colour and believes that there is a sliding scale of racism. Doesn't matter that she's um, a woman of colour, but she's a, um, a colleague and she has an opinion that you don't agree with. So where is the justification for kicking her out of the party or suspending her from the party? Where, where, where is the, the harm caused by Diane Abbott, even if what she said is patently ridiculous? I said, when I became Labour leader, my very first speech, my acceptance speech, was that I would tear anti-Semitism out of the Labour Party by its roots. By its roots. I, I would tear anti-Semitism out of the party by its roots. But there was nothing anti-Jewish in what she said. Nothing. We've been hard at that for so three that years. We've changed the Labour forgiven. Party... Or not. Forgiven for what? Well, there's an investigation going on now, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not... Funnily enough, a little bit later on, I came across an interview with Ruth Anderson. Ruth is a Jewish lady who sits in the House of Lords for Labour. She's a Labour peer. And she takes a slightly different take on this. And she's a Jewish woman. Diane Abbott, regardless, we're not on the same wing of the Labour Party. She is friends with lots of people who have made my life quite difficult. 
she was also the first black woman to be elected. She is an icon in her own lifetime. That is an extraordinary thing. I don't want her political career to end like this. I find all of this so sad. And honestly, I'm tired of my identity being used as a political football. Well said, Ruth Anderson. I'm tired of my identity being used as a political football. Diane Abbott is iconic and I don't want to see her career end like this. This is a Jewish lady. She must be the wrong Jew. You often see that. This is GB News. You won't see Ruth Anderson on Good Morning Britain. You won't see her on LBC Radio. She's the wrong Jew, you see. Just like sometimes you will get people of colour who say things like, well, there isn't really any endemic racism anymore. Things have moved on. When a person of colour says that, they don't get to be on television very often, you see. They're the wrong person of colour. That's pretty decent from Ruth Anderson. What else does she say? Within the party that I have dedicated my life to. I'm just sad. I know that is, a ch we need to move on from this chapter. I want us to be talking about how we form government. I want us to be talking about how we beat the Tories. I want us to be talking about how we're going to fix the communities that I live in in Stoke. I, you know, how we're going to win back your old seat and my old seat. I want us to provide a level of hope for the future for the country. This is sad and miserable and takes us back to a place I don't want to be in. Very good. That's Ruth Anderson there, kind of sticking up, kind of, for Diane Abbott, saying, you know, old Diane has got plenty in the bank. Now, this is Ruth Anderson saying this, not me. I don't have any time for Diane Abbott or any other politician. I don't dislike Abbott any more than any other politician. I find her ridiculous, frankly, sometimes, Diane Abbott. Some of her statements border on the insane. But um, that's a different perspective. Yet Keir Starmer says that by claiming there's a hierarchy of racism, which maybe there isn't, uh, Diane Abbott is racist or anti-Semitic. It's 18 minutes past the hour. I was going to do something else on... Labour's plans to teach boys in schools, to teach boys respect lessons, lessons in how to respect women. But I might save that for Stuart Waiton, who'll be on with me shortly. Hi to Sharon Fisher. Thank you for your kind words, Sharon. Hi to Ginger Dan. Hi to Keys, who's in Nottingham. How are you doing, Keys? Nice to hear from you as well. And um, somebody... Yeah, there's been a lot of comment about my conversation with Christopher Monkton last night. I won't get into that, but but thanks for, for finding it amusing and, and interesting enough to, to send me messages today. Grace Ann says, it's nice to be with you on this dull, rainy day in Glasgow. It's climate change, Grace. You know that. And David says, Jerry Springer pushed the vaccine and on his Twitter page told everyone to get vaxxed. Yeah, but that doesn't mean he's the devil, David. You know, Jerry Springer might have believed in the vaccine. A lot of people, including people in my own family and my better half's family, they believed in the vaccine and would have encouraged people to get it. So it doesn't mean he's some system shill. He might just have believed in the vaccine. Hi to Martin and Linda in Spain. Lovely. It's um, 19 minutes past the hour. Do leave me a message also, by the way, if you'd like to do today, via the website richieallen.co.uk, where it says comment live on the top of the menu bar there. Pandora says Abbott's been has been playing with her 8-6 abacus beans again, and like Baldrick has come up with a casserole. She cannot estimate its real size. Suffice to say, it's enough for her aunties. Seven of them, says Pandora. Thanks for that. Richard Kelly says people should... The jabs 
the jabs are the worst thing since the Holocaust, he says, of 1845 to 1850 of the Irish. Or people should say that the jabs are the worst thing since the Holocaust of the Irish people in the mid part of the 19th century. See how they react to that, says Richard. Yes, Richard. Joe says, I was of the opinion that Serbia was in Europe re uh, the wars. Chris says, Boris Johnson said that the Ukraine conflict was the first war in Europe since World War II. But it isn't, says Chris. NATO having bombed the bejesus out of Belgrade in 1999. That's a very good point too. It's your Richie Allen show. It is Thursday's show. Back with you in about 45 seconds. I hope you're still there. To all the listeners who have become loyal customers of Immunex 365 since we launched in October last year, we would like to say a big thank you. Because of your continued support, we have been able to introduce our second product. This unique supplement is formulated specifically to reduce pain caused by joint inflammation. Our organic turmeric-based supplement contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract which massively increases its bioavailability and thereby reaching the inflamed area faster. If you are suffering from joint pain, go to NutraHealth365.com for specific details on how our joint health supplement can help give you relief. That's NutraHealth365.com with free tract delivery. You're listening to the saviour of independent media, Richie Allen. Yeah, 21 minutes past the hour. I suppose I better take a tune and then dial up Stuart Waiton. That's Dr. Stuart Waiton, PhD. Please do not forget that a little bit later on, Mina will be on the programme from Class Action COVID UK. They're assessing cases of severe vaccine injury. If you think you have a potential claim, then contact them. We'll talk about that in the second hour. Thursday it is, the 27th of April, 2023. We are heading into a bank holiday weekend. That will be nice, won't it? So let's have some Bachman Turner overdrive. And taking care of business. You're taking care of your business this Thursday, are you? Are you, I said... Bachman Turner Overdrive taking care of business. It's 25 minutes past 5 o'clock this Thursday on the Richie Allen Show. I tell you what, the app is working out really well. It's had a couple of thousand downloads already, which is great. And the messages are coming through really quickly. There's been dozens of messages already. I, w- I want to, to um, use as much of the time. I, wanna, I, I don't want to waste any time for the rest of this hour. I'm really glad to have Stuart back in the programme. So many things to talk about with him. Dr. Stuart Waiton, as I told you earlier on, is an author, journalist and a senior lecturer in sociology and criminology at Abertay University. He's also a board member at the Scottish Union for Education. He's written a brilliant piece in Spiked Online recently about an attack on the judiciary in Scotland. And we'll 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 talk about that with him um, shortly. But before that, we'll, one or two other things I want to get into with him. Stuart, welcome back. Good to have you on. Hi, thanks. Can, can you hear me all? You sound lovely. You've got a new mic. You tell me. <laughs> you see, be, oh, okay. being from being from the northeast of the UK, you're blessed with a wonderful broadcasting voice. Every year, one of the uh, one of the industry magazines it rates accents for broadcasting, and you're up there, northeast, number one usually. And then it's that's, West. It's a, strange. I, I always think my accent's embarrassing when I hear myself. No, back. no, people love it. People love it. It's one of the most popular accents, particularly in this country. Um, serious, what's happening with regards to your justice? Well, not yours, of course, but the justice system in Scotland. We we we, we will come to that. But it, it was interesting. I emailed you when I mentioned that. I, I won't dwell on this too long. But um, a pal of mine 
daughter's coming to the end of uni year one. He's seen a real change in her. Now, it's not the first I've heard this. And I don't want to be coming down on students because I was a student and I like students generally. But a real change in terms of uh, a kind of uh, a growing intolerance to listening to the ideas of other people and jumping on with a lot of agendas, you know, jumping on with we must protect this vulnerable group or that vulnerable group and getting to the point where communication kind of breaks down in the homestead. And I wondered, with you being a sociologist, is this a phenomenon now? Is this something that people like you are going to have to define? Um, it's, it's, it's a tricky one because, if I'm honest, the, my students are tempt, but the framework of how I discuss things has changed a little bit because I'm conscious. So, <laughs> for example, I held a meeting in Dundee recently about the transgender or the promotion of a transgender ideology in schools and there was a 50 strong protest outside the meeting someone had a little placard with Stuart waiting as a bigot so that so I got I got a photograph of that and that was the we used that for the uh, our newsletter for the Scottish Union for Education because I thought that's funny um but that's the problem so a lot of my students are conscious of that so when Somebody raised the trans issue in my class. Some of them started to giggle because they thought, oh, where's this going to go? <laughs> um, but I didn't I didn't push the button too hard. I was just able to, because I'm always discussing something else, sort of like something to do with liberal values or law or something. I'm able to discuss it more abstractly. But, I, I mean, you, you touched on this, the vulnerable groups thing. Um and it's like that that placard as well, you know, that I'm a bigot. So bigots like witch now, right? Or yeah. uh, fascist or whatever. It's a kind of, it, you now have sort of, which is funny because it's always from people who say they're against hate, but they have all these words that are full of hatred, um, which, and it's more than hate. It's a problem of, it's a problem of the framework of identity and it's a problem, as you mentioned, of this thing called vulnerable groups, because the way it works now is that what previously would have been thought about as politics and ideas has collapsed into a form of etiquette and a form of um, it's almost like your opinions aren't just opinions now, your opinions actually have a have an impact on me as a person, have an impact on my mental well-being, have an impact on my identity. So instead of whereas in the past you had a separation, you know, you've got yourself over there and your private self and you have your public self and that's where you have discussions and you can discuss pretty much everything because it's a public discussion. Now when you're having these political discussions, they're also kind of private they have a private impact because it's all become about me, about my identity, about who I am and so on. And that's the real danger, because once you have that situation, you can't really have a discussion anymore because uh, it's it's seen as somehow damaging, hurtful uh, and a form of violence. You know, we've discussed this before, this yeah. words as violence thing. Opinions, so as, opinions as weapons. 
opinions as yeah. weapons. Yeah, you said that to me before, yeah. and I, 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 I genuinely, you know, I, I'm, I'm not the nicest guy in the world. My listeners know this. So I'm not trying to score points with anybody, but I do genuinely kind of feel a bit for the kids that are. I shouldn't call them kids. That's patronising, but the students who are entering uni or college, because I think um, there's. Um, isn't entrainment is a musical term, isn't it? Where you pluck some notes on a violin and then the third violin um, suddenly begins to, you know, ring out that sound. Is there an entrainment thing that might be happening? I mean, it, what chance do students have going into uni? I mean, they're going to think pretty sharpish that, well, I better kind of modify my language and be careful about what I say in order to get along. I better go along to get along. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting one, again, because... You know, a lot of subjects, you know, if you're doing a science subject or this subject or that subject, I mean, I, I would have to go into the classes to see if this is a thing, right? Because most of the time, most of the things you're talking about are not necessarily around these subjects. But I do think because it's become a kind of a form of etiquette and politeness that increasingly everyone knows it. You know, everyone knows what are the the sort of the, the issues you can't really say, the words you can't really say. Um, and you are kind of getting more and more subjects. Yeah. Uh, even bizarre subjects that you would never think that have to be kind of decolonized or, you know, made um, so that they're sensitive and so on. So there, it, there's more and more scope for more and more students to say that they're offended by such and such. But it doesn't mean that every every discussion at university and every class and all the rest of it is weighed down by this stuff. No. I think it's, it's a bit more subtle than that. Um, Stuart, can I ask you on that? Sorry to interrupt you. Can I ask you on that? So the Conservative Party, which is obviously in government here in, um, in, in the UK, in, in England, it says it wants to take this on. It says it's serious about wanting to take it on. And it's, you know, basically written to, well, it's legislating for it, saying that, you know, universities should be places where pretty much everything is up for discussion and nobody should be deplatformed in the way that the Oxford LGBT groups are trying to stop Kathleen Stock. So do you trust the Tories? Will they, will they enshrine this in law that you shouldn't be scared of going in to lecture your students in criminology, scared that somebody will say, oh, I can't sit in his class because... He's a bigot. I mean, is this protection coming down the line from government? Yeah, it's funny you should say that. I am, I am waiting for that. But yeah, <laughs> as I know, as as far as I know, it hasn't happened yet. Um, I, I, I think there's a small number of Tories that are strong on this. I suspect, uh, and I suspect the bulk of them are not so strong. It's also a problem that law isn't really the solution. So if you're talking about which we are essentially talking about is freedom. It's almost like, not counterintuitive, but almost oxymoronic that you say we need a law to enforce yes. freedom of speech. You know, it's kind of like, well, how's that? How does that work exactly? Because that's like you, you, you punish people for not. It's it's kind of I'm not sure how it will work. So, I mean, as far as I can see, it needs to be a kind of cultural change needs to be campaign groups. I mean, I'm thinking about just uh, yesterday, I can't remember the name of this film, but there's there's a film that's doing the rounds, which is basically questions the transgender ideology. Yes, I've seen it. Women, 
it's got women in the title. I can't remember what it's called exactly. But anyway, it was going to be shown at Edinburgh University. This was the second time. They were going to show it a few months ago. And the trans activists walked into the university and basically blocked it. And there was almost a battle. Security didn't seem to do very much. Well, anyway, it's going to be shown again yesterday. So this is Edinburgh University. And this time I've heard, which I have to double check, but that my union, uh, the UCU, University College Union, Lecturers Union, apparently my union activists at Edinburgh University organised and stopped the event again. They basically filled the corridors with people so that the event couldn't happen. So it had to, had to be cancelled. And you're just like, wow. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm cling, cl clinging on to my union membership. Yeah. But you know, I, I find it harder and harder to justify. So I'm thinking myself that, well, I should organize this event at my university um, and see what happens there. So, I mean, that would be interesting if there was a law in place. It might at least make the university authorities take themselves seriously and the security guards wouldn't be sort of like having you know a nice yeah. cup of tea with these activists that are stopping a debate or discussion happening. They'd be actually doing their job and making sure that uh, it can actually happen. So in a so-called in a so-called liberal democracy, it's interesting because because my experience of university was lots and lots of debates with all sorts of people. You know, particularly with me with my kind kind of old lefty credentials, I used to love getting into the room with the you know with with anybody who was considered right wing, and you'd have a proper go. They're missing out on so much. I mean. Why Why wouldn't the trans folks want to say, well, let's go and watch this film then. Let's get somebody at the university then to chair a debate afterwards. We'll have a panel debate. We'll have six people yeah. here, six people there, and we'll do it properly. And they're missing out on so much. I mean, that was better. When we used to do that at uni, you did it at uni, and then you'd go to the pub. You'd have a couple yeah. of beers, and uh, they're missing out on so much, really. Absolutely, absolutely so much. And it's actually, you're right, because you can learn to respect your opponents. I mean, I remember the first thing I ever did at when I was, at, I was at Kingston Poly, which it was at the time, and the first thing I did was I got up uh, and did a motion on uh, Bloody Sunday. Right. I questioned, questioned Britain's role in Ireland, and there was a lot of kind of like quasi-public school types who failed to get into any other university, so ended up in Kingston Poly. <laughs> they weren't very happy about this, so that was, you can imagine how that went. But that was, uh, you know, baptism of fire. Um, people with real anger, uh, real passion about a subject, and you know, bring it on. You know, that's what that's what public life should be. There's hard questions. There are big issues that need to be addressed, and this is how you learn. You learn actually how to be have a have a certain amount of strength of character by standing up for yourself. And that's that's a key thing I think's been lost here is the idea that you need to get out of yourself and become you know and develop. And the opposite's happening. People are increasingly looking inwards and you know, hiding in their identity inside themselves and just not being able to develop into mature adults, as far as I can see. Yeah, I can imagine that was a baptism of fire. But tellingly, none of these quasi-public schoolboy types wanted you to be banned or said yep. you shouldn't have a say. In fact, their, their desire was to, well, we're going to listen to this guy and then we're going to take him on. And that's how it should be. You know, somebody once said to me many years ago, whatever the truth is, it doesn't matter what the truth is, it should be able to stand up to 
any scrutiny. Dr. Stuart Waiton, PhD, is our guest. He's a lecturer, criminology, sociology. You know he's an author and journalist too. And this is kind of serious, uh, This what's happening in Scotland. Stuart has written for Spiked Online. Check it out, spiked-online.com. The SNP's elitist attack on trial by jury. I was what, re- reading about this um, this week and hadn't hadn't gotten into it. I haven't, haven't really gotten into it yet. Really important to be getting into it today. What is happening exactly, Stuart? What are the plans? Honestly, it's, uh, you, know, you know, I mean, I'm sure you're the same. Your, your jaw drops at times when yeah. these things develop. Ba- basically, promoted by a woman called Dorothy Bain, in part, who's the Lord Advocate. So she's the senior law officer to the Scottish government um, and others who are arguing that uh, rape trials uh, shouldn't have a jury and they shouldn't have a jury because, and I'm slightly putting words into their mouth, but not really. I can tell you exactly what their words are, but they're basically saying the public are bigots. The term they use is they believe in rape myths um, and therefore they can't be trusted to adjudicate on rape trials, so we're going to get rid of juries for a trial period, and rape will now be adjudicated by judges. Uh, there's there's an addition to this. I mean, there's various factors to it, but one of the arguments is that in Scotland you have this thing called the trauma-informed approach, right, which the Scottish government has introduced, which basically says pretty much everyone's traumatised by everything. Right. Uh, and, you know, rape in particular, everyone is traumatised who comes into a court, or we must, we must assume they are, and you, ordinary people don't understand tr- the trauma-informed approach, whereas we're going to train judges to understand and appreciate this trauma-informed approach, right? And where it gets absolutely uh, Kafka-esque in the extreme is what they argue is that following a trauma-informed approach, right, so you understand that the person, the woman standing in front of you is quite likely to be traumatised, you must take a counterintuitive perspective, right, by which they mean if she seems unreliable, right, if she doesn't seem to be convincing, if she... If you're just looking at this person and thinking no, there's nothing that's doesn't add that up, I yeah. can believe you need to take a counterintuitive approach, i.e., turn it around, right? Because trauma can have all sorts of impacts on people, and how they respond to things can't be predicted. So this incredibly unreliable witness, who seems to be lying, who doesn't seem to be actually a victim of anything, you have to turn that around and say take a counterintuitive perspective, right? And you're like going, what? So so basically these judges are being trained that if someone st- is standing in front of you who you think is completely unreliable, you have to bin that and say, she must be totally reliable because I'm taking a trauma-informed counterintuitive approach to justice. And it that, is unbelievable. When I read this, I couldn't believe it, to be honest. And I had, to, I had to read it twice in the... Telegraph um, earlier this week, reading your piece in Spike. You I mean you you absolutely decimate this in 
in Spiked Online. Read this article, folks. It's, it's, what Stuart has described is, is absolutely bang on. So effectively, and I don't want to sensationalise this anymore, but the defendant hasn't got a cat in hell's chance, has he or she? Well, it, it's, it's even worse than that because obviously the reason that this is happening is because Holyrood, the Scottish Parliament, uh, has basically adopted what would many would see as an extremist feminist position. This isn't any particular party. That the, the, the parliament itself has argued in various times that you need to take a gender-informed approach to this, which basically means what I would describe as an extreme feminist position. So you then get this change, and then you've got jury uh, uh, judges who are trained in this trauma-informed approach who also know that the reason that this is now in their hands is because there aren't enough convictions, right? So the, the pressure on judges to convict is extraordinary, and it's political pressure. And you just think, this is, I mean, this is like a medieval court situation where you have these elites who think that the common people need to be kept out because they're just, you know, backward. And you need these enlightened uh, uh, judges who've been trained in correct thinking yeah. to be giving the right decisions. It's just It's madness, right? But let me let me do what I should do and put the other point of view here, yeah. right? So I have a, an amazing lady called Marilyn Hawes on this programme from time to time. And um, she's a, an expert in sexual abuse and, and, and rape. She's a really good woman, very open-minded. And she tells me, and she's right, I think, that under 1% of reported rapes lead to a conviction. Now, that's just a, a statistic for England and Wales. I can't imagine that, in reality, 99% of women who say they were raped are lying. And I, I, I know you wouldn't say that either. So obviously there's something very fundamentally wrong in the justice system where women are being sexually assaulted. Some women, some women very, very terribly sexually assaulted and they're not seeing the guy or the woman who did it go to prison. Why do we think that's happening? Well, you see, it's the figure that they use, I just think it's disingenuous, right? So that is a figure that includes every single phone call, every drunken phone call, every half complaint, every everything, absolutely everything. And and I suspect you could find other serious crimes where this the the figures are not that different. So when 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 they get to trial in Scotland, fifty one percent of people are convicted, right? So if they're talking about the jury, yeah, there's still fifty one percent. And you imagine rape is a highly contested thing. The evidence might be quite difficult, and so on. Fifty one percent in England, it's actually up to seventy five percent now as it happens. But that figure is it includes uh, neighbours phoning in, false allegations. It's, it's the point of the first right. point that gets there. Now, you would have to look at every each one of them, if you had like, you know, a, a thousand to look at over time and, and you could work out and say, well, what was what happened to that? What happened to that? What happened to that? And I suspect in a lot of those cases, you would just say, well, it's not, this isn't really clear. There's not, there's no evidence. Um, the person's withdrawn their complaint. This was a dispute. You know, this was a domestic. This was whatever it was, and so on. But you'd have to look at that. Yeah, it's that figure that they use, right? They they, they try to use that figure all the time to try and make it look as if, because a lot of people think, oh wow, that's one percent of 
people that get to court, right? That's how it's often misinterpreted, but it's not. It's from the very, very start. And you'd have to look at that. And that's that's fine. You know, that's, but, you know, are you telling me it's because what police officers just say, oh, I'm not interested, you know, that they're, what, what, I mean, what, what is, what is their explanation for that? Right? Yeah. Is, are they saying that the whole world is sexist? No one cares no. about rape? It's just not true. I mean, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever met a human being in my life that doesn't think rape is a heinous crime, absolutely despicable, should be taken profoundly seriously. Um, and, you know, so what, 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 what's their explanation, right? But that, as far as I can see, the explanations they seem to come up with is we live in a misogynistic society. Yeah. And, well, that's, yeah, this, a, that's, that's been done for those reasons, which does, just doesn't wash as far as I can see. It's a simplistic um, response to that, isn't it? We, we live in a misogynistic society. Listen, what we're talking about at this moment doesn't detract whatsoever from what you said earlier on, which is 100% true, to remove juries from these trials because people can't be trusted to instruct judges to take a counterintuitive approach to a witness who's unreliable. That's certainly not the answer, if indeed there is some issue in the justice system. That's absolute madness. But I, w- I will say this to you. Look, there's been, there's been a number of reports in recent years, and even Mark, Mark um, Rowley, the current Met Commission, uh, the, the, the Commissioner of the Met Police in London, he's come out and acknowledged... And, and we've seen this in Manchester, funnily enough, where, where I'm based in Salford, but in Manchester, where the force had to be put in special measures here, where all sorts of really terrible behaviour was, was, was going on amongst police officers. And in some cases, it was around cases where women had come in and reported rape and evidence was missing and all sorts of stuff. So, so look, I hear you. When, and by the way, you educated me. I, I kind of had forgotten that the 1% that it's taking into account everything, you know, a phone call or a text message or a tweet. So so I'd kind of forgotten that. That's important. But I also want to bring this into it, right? I am 48 years of age. When I was 15 and 16, my mates and I used to get videos that were usually filmed in Italy or somewhere or Germany. Um, I'm talking about pornographic films as a young lad, right? You had to watch these things as a young lad. And these were very benign films made with cheesy music and they usually showed consensual sex. Now I know that you as a sociologist must be interested in how pornography has changed in the last 10 to 15 years and how so much of it now is pretty violent. And maybe it is having some impact on young men and maybe it is leading to an upsurge in, you know, violence against women, choking and, 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 and what not, not in sex. And maybe this is playing some part in this as well. And if you take that into account, it is kind of staggering that there are so few convictions for rape. You know, do you, do you think about that? You know, this this advent of graphically brutally violent porn. Uh, well, I I know what you mean, but then you'd have to look at well, how many people are watching it and how many people then. Yeah. Does that mean that that's what they do? Because I mean, porn's a kind of fantasy world where you, yeah. it's like a, it's it's not. If you were judging every man by the porn they'd watched, you'd you'd, you know, you'd probably never speak to any man. <laughs> you know, I mean, possibly you know, about it. So I'd, I'd be really careful with that. And and uh, you know, uh, as far as I can tell, the, the rape statistics aren't going up; they're going down. It's like most most sexual harassment's gone down. You know, if you actually look at um, uh, the crime crime victim surveys, mo- like most violent crime, these things are going down. They're not going up. It's 
see, I, I just think it's the world turned upside down. What, what's happened is you've got this rise of a kind of victim feminism at the centre of government, and they see everything through the eyes of misogyny. So in Scotland, we had a misogyny working group set up, completely one-dimensional in terms of the people who were on it. Um, and now they're promoting this idea that we need to have make sexism a crime in this country. And what, what happens is when you look at things like the um, CBI at the minute, police forces that are being dragged over the course and all the rest of it, they lump together what most people would see as the most trivial, non-significant incidents with rape. They put them yeah, all yeah, together yeah. and they say, we have a systemic problem of misogyny and sexism in this entire institution, blah, 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 and all the rest of it. And you've got to then go and like look at the statistics and pick them apart and actually say, well, okay, so we're talking about two rapes here, but that's a rape allegation, so that's not proven. You know, we're talking about sexual harassment here, so that's bad. These cases should have been dealt with better. And then we're talking about this huge lump of people saying things on WhatsApp, people using inappropriate language, blah, 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 and so on. But it's all lumped together. Lumped together it shouldn't yeah. be lumped together. It should not be. I mean, there's something profoundly wrong in a society where you can't distinguish the petty sexist behavior of a guy that you'd you know you'd basically call him a name say you're an idiot mate calm yourself yeah and someone raping somebody and, that, and that's all collapsed into the same package i mean that's just a really dangerous situation to be in when we start to promote things and see things through that prison that's a very good point too Stuart waiting is our guest on that i want to move on to to labor's plans to teach young boys how to respect women which 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 scares me really. I mean, I, I'm all for parents raising children, but I just want to mention who Stuart is. I know you know who Stuart is. He's a board member of the Scottish Union for Education. He's a very respected uh, lecturer in sociology and criminology at Aberdeen University. He writes for many publications. You'll find him this week on Spiked Online. And uh, it's brilliant to have you on, pal. You should come on more often. And you really should. I was listening to a Labour politician on Politics Live today, she wouldn't answer a question that was being posed by Joe Coburn. I think Joe Coburn hosted today. She said, what exactly does it mean when you plan to teach boys how to respect women in, in classrooms? Do you mean that you'll take boys away separately and, and educate them on their own? And she didn't have any ideas. They never have any detail, these people. They're, they're, they're useless, most of them. I can't stand this nonsense. I really can't. And I, it, it, these are the kind of things that are beginning to keep me up nights. And again, I'm not, being, I'm not exaggerating when I say that, that they just won't leave youngsters alone to be youngsters. I mean, this is rotten, isn't it? To take young boys and to tell them that they have a problem when they probably don't have a problem. Yeah, it's, um, I, I mean, it's, it's again, it's, it's one of the things that, horrifies me about where we're moving because it's basically you could describe it as kind of essentially colonizing the private life and private world of children and adolescents and that's that's what's happening through the curriculum you know so even when you look at this stuff called relationship education trying to teach people trying to teach adolescents how to have a correct relationship you know it's like you know, when, when, when in the past did people get taught that nitty-gritty of you know, what, what happened was you were raised, people raised you to be decent, schools educated you, so they expanded your mind and this, there's an element of discipline and correct behaviour and so on. And you kind of then, you had this thing called rite of passage, which was basically that space where you have to learn for yourself, right? Where that's, and that's a really important space 
for adolescents and young men and young women to learn how to relate to each other. And basically, they're trying to colonize that area of life, which is really important area of life, but needs to be a free area of life. And they're colonizing it again with basically, essentially, a feminist perspective on the world, which starts from this term toxic masculinity. Right? And you look up this term in the last pretty much about last eight years, didn't hardly ever use this term toxic masculinity. You do it. You do a search of this. It's like it's through the roof. It's almost it's almost a, a vertical line upwards. This idea of toxic masculinity. And this is the problem. Again, the world turned upside down. The bigots are the people who are looking at boys and see toxic masculinity. Right. They're the people who are filled with prejudices, you know, like Dorothy Bain in the Scottish Parliament and these other, this, this uh, misogyny working group, they're the bigots. They, they look outside and see gammon man. You know, they, they presume everyone's sexist. Every second person must be battering their wives, probably abusing their kids. And you've got toxic masculinity running right through society. Therefore, we must regulate sexism in all its forms because, you know, someone muttering a sexist joke to his friend uh, is, is one step away from uh, domestic abuse and then yeah. rape. That's their mindset. And yeah. you want these people in schools teaching your kids? It's just bonkers. It's bonkers, <laughs> yeah. Because I think back, you know, it's, we're getting into warm weather now. So I'll be at the, I'll be at the T20 cricket with my, with my pals. Um, I go to the footy. Most times United are at home. And I'm with lads, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by a group of lads and lads when they're together, a couple of beers, you're relaxing, you've had a tough week. You know, it's a great environment. Anything and everything is said, none of it is meant. But the idea that this somehow has to be dealt with. I find this Andrew Tate moral panic absolutely hilarious. And I meant to email you about this a few weeks back. A very funny thing happened on BBC Radio 5 Live. The Nicky Campbell phone-in show attempted to create a real... I, I probably could say panic about this Andrew Tate and young boys being exposed. But rather embarrassingly for the BBC, quite a number of callers managed to get on air to say that they'd asked their sons, have you seen any of Andrew Tate on social media? And they said yes. And Nicky Campbell was like, well, what did they say? And nearly in every case, the uh, the young boy went, he's a bit of an idiot. So nobody, uh, nobody agrees with any of that. And this really seemed to piss off the BBC. They couldn't wait to get these people off the air, you know, because that's what I imagine is true, Stuart, that a young lad might see Andrew Tate standing in front of a Lamborghini, acting the clown, and you just laugh at him and you go, well, he's a bit of a dipstick. You know, the idea that the young lad will then start, um, you know, to change his language, to change his mindset, his outset, uh, his outlook on life. But uh, it's a real interesting one. Um, they, they, they've created this bogeyman, haven't they, with this guy Tate? Yeah, they have, although he is a product of our times because if being masculine was just normal and accepted, he wouldn't exist. The reason he is so successful is that he takes a kind of extreme idea of masculinity. But there are truths within what he says, right? There are truths in terms of some of the issues he raises and some of the problems and some of the projections of you know, what a man should be and all the rest of it. Because you hardly see it. You hardly see it anywhere else in terms of, yes, being strong, being tough, being aggressive, being assertive. These things are positive. These things are good. 
these things are, you know, you could say masculine value, although I'm, I'm loath to say it to a certain extent, because I think women can be all those things. But yeah. nevertheless, he promotes that. He's the one that stands up and says it. Hardly anyone else says it. And so he makes millions, right? He becomes a thing that lots of boys watch because, you know, there's nobody else who's a bit more sensible, a bit more nuanced. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just normal, right? It's it's yeah. abnormal now to actually stand up for those sort of things. So, I mean, so in Scotland, this is the proposed law on misogyny is that if a woman hears, say, for guys on a stag do and all the rest of it, saying uh, dirty things, like sex things, yeah. That would be a crime, right? That would be a crime. And there's a real class dimension to this as well, I think, that things that, you know, more, maybe it's more working class blokes or blokey blokes having a, having a laugh, being a bit cheeky, you know, saying a, you know, a, a mentioned comment in a girl and all the rest of it. And most working class lasses in that situation would give, you know, give it back. Double barrel, laugh, yeah. You know, and so on. But, you know, your prim... You know, like your lawyer who's, you know, never, never left, you know, let, goes from a n nice private school straight to university, all the rest of it. She sees these guys. Oh, it's, you know, it's a shock. It's an outrage. And this sort of, and, and that's going to be a criminal offence in Scotland, potentially. It's, I mean, it's just, it's never ending. It's never ending. No, and down here, as you know, reported in the Sunday Telegraph the week before last, they want to make, to make business owners culpable when they're, when their staff are offended. It's hilarious, isn't it? You could walk into a bar and you could say, uh, uh, well, Stuart will have his usual love. He'll have a Guinness and I'll have a G&T, love. You're looking well. And all of a sudden, you know, she says that the boss should have protected her from such misogyny and all. It is, uh, yeah. It's, it's funny, you, you know, because on the one hand, I was listening to Marina Porkis, who I don't share many opinions with Marina Porkis, but she, I thought she was onto something when she had a go at Jacob Rees-Mogg the other day on, on his programme. By the way, you and I should do a whole programme on the advent of politicians being given news programmes to present. I've been bitching about this for three years because I'm a real journalist. I'm a trained journalist and I've worked at every level. You know, Stuart, if somebody said to me 20 years ago, the time will come when, when news programmes will be handed to politicians and Ofcom will not even bat an eyelid. I would have said you, um, you, 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 you were crazy. But um, these are the times. Yeah, but Marina Perkins basically said, look, um, you and your party are stoking culture wars, like the migrant stuff and all of this. I'm not saying these are not serious issues. They are. The rights of women are serious issues. But political parties are very clever at using these issues, aren't they? to get away with, you know, not dealing with obviously very, very serious issues like, for example, the cost of living. I'll give you the final word on that because I, I sense you might disagree with me. Go ahead. Well, I think I think they do. I think the Tories um, use it opportunistically. Uh, but actually, I think the Tories don't take these issues seriously enough. I think, for example, the transgender education that's happening in schools, I think is horrific and a profound problem um not not just in terms of kids becoming trans but the whole framework of a school education system that allows and encourages children to be self-absorbed and self-obsessed and to look inwards into their identity i think it's doing harm to those kids i think it's undermining what education should be which is the opposite it should be drawing kids out of themselves putting pressure on them educationally and saying you need to be mature grow up, stop being so self-absorbed, uh, look out into the world. And we are now educationally in the curriculum, helping to create a generation of narcissists. And, you know, that's that's the future. And that is not a good future. 
No, it isn't. Good to have you back on, mate. Really enjoy your company, as do our listeners. I don't know if you checked the comments, but um, really, really positive comments on, on our website. You've been listening to Dr. Stuart Waiton, PhD, senior criminologist, senior... Um, um, what, what's the other one? Sociologist. Sociologist, yeah, yeah, mine's just gone wandering there. Of course, Stuart is an author and a journalist as well. Great pleasure, Stuart. Thanks, mate. I look forward to next time. Cheers. See you later. Bye for now. Uh, Dr. Stuart Waiton, PhD, on... Thursdays, Richard. Why couldn't I think of sociologist? Just went out of my bloody head. Back in a moment. To all the listeners who have become loyal customers of Immunex 365 since we launched in October last year, we would like to say a big thank you. Because of your continued support, we have been able to introduce our second product. This unique supplement is formulated specifically to reduce pain caused by joint inflammation. Our organic turmeric-based supplement contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract which massively increases its bioavailability and thereby reaching the inflamed area faster. If you are suffering from joint pain, go to NutraHealth365.com for specific details on how our joint health supplement can help give you relief. That's NutraHealth365.com. With free track delivery. What BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Yes, NutraHealth365.com. Eamon is a good man. Free tracked delivery. Check him out. He's a huge supporter of the independent media. So check out his supplements there. I've heard good things. So I have three minutes past the hour. It's uh, Thursday's Richie Allen Show with me, Richie Allen. Uh, good to hear from Stuart Waiton. Mina Jew will be on the programme shortly to talk about class action COVID UK. In fact, Sandy Adams was on to me when I was on holiday to talk about this. They're looking at um, a potential class action court case against those responsible for pushing the COVID jabs. I, I will ask Mina, who would they be going after? The government, uh, the medical establishment, the pharmaceutical companies, of course, were given indemnity against prosecution. They were, the, the jabs themselves were, giving emer- were given even emergency use authorization, And they said the, the pharmaceutical companies behind the jabs were immune. Immune, they were, you know, they were absolved. They wouldn't be prosecuted. But that maybe isn't so clear that, you see, if you can demonstrate, for example, that the pharmaceutical companies themselves knew that their jabs had the potential to be very harmful. Well, that might throw out legally any indemnity, you see. We'll talk about this with Mina shortly. Thanks for your messages, by the way. There have been uh, very many of them, many of them. Hi to uh, Kay, that's Kay Hanley, who says, does the promotion of the trans agenda discriminate against members of the gay community. For example, offering young people puberty blockers rather than accepting the fact that they might be in fact gay, says Kay Hanley. That's a good point, Kay. And it's one I've heard mentioned on television and on radio by gay men and women, usually a little bit, um, you know, a little bit older than some of these young trans people. There must be some of that going on because I've great sympathy and empathy for any young person who realises that they are attracted to a member of the same sex, you know. I've great sympathy because you're in, obviously you're in a very, very small minority straight away. And obviously you're thinking about how your parents will react to that, how your friends will react to it. So it's not easy. And maybe for some, and maybe it's a very small number, I don't know, 
but maybe for some young gay men particularly, maybe the, you know, the, the trans thing is a kind of a way out, really, of saying, well, well, I'm not gay, actually. In fact, no, I must be a woman. Why would I be attracted to men otherwise? I must be, there must be a good chance that I'm in the wrong body. Maybe there is some of that going on. I've heard gay men in particular talk about this. John Rorty, who's a listener to this programme, was in New York. He's a really good guy. He's been married to his uh, husband, Steve, for a quarter of a century. I think he's tweeted out something similar to this. You know, there is an issue there, surely, with some young gay kids who don't want to face up to their sexuality. Because it's not easy. God, it, it can't be easy. I mean, I've obviously not had the experience, but I, I asked my gay friends over the years, what was it like? And they all said, pretty shitty, Richie. You know, having to try and, you know, the guilt and the shame. There's something wrong with me when there isn't. And then dealing with the parents. And in some cases, the parents are not too amenable to that. And all the rest of it. Of course, it was probably much, much, much more difficult 15, 20, 25 years ago. Hi to Dean, who says the education system at all levels, in his opinion, is about programming and conditioning. Free thinking and open minds are not to be encouraged. The use of today are the easily manipulated adults of tomorrow. That's Dean. Thank you, Dean. Hi to Mike, who says in the 90s, Andrew Tate would have been a Harry Enfield character. That's right. I meant to mention to Stuart, and I forgot to mention to him, I was listening to... Who was it now? I think it might have been Dermot Murnahan by accident. No, it wasn't. No, no, it wasn't Dermot Murnahan. It was somebody else on BBC Radio 2. And they were interviewing, the presenter was interviewing Lewis Capaldi, who was a very successful pop singer, whose music is not to my taste, but that doesn't matter. I doubt he cares. He's very successful. And he came on this BBC Radio 2 programme and spent most of the time talking about dealing with his mental health issues. Now, this is a recent phenomenon on broadcast media where people, where, where programming, lots of programming is given over to talking about mental health issues. And you and I would probably agree that this is a very sinister agenda. It's a pharmacological agenda, I would say. You know, and I hate this. And I found myself giggling. I was in the car. Maybe I was travelling to Wales with the future missus, maybe. Maybe I was. And I found myself giggling at this. Here you have Lewis Capaldi. He should be having the time of his life. He's a pop star. I'd love to experience being a pop star. Just for a few minutes, like. Must be great crack, limousines, parties. You know, if you are so inclined, lovely young ladies. <laughs> right? Your peer group. Women of the same age, but young women, right? Who come to your concerts. Groupies, I'm joking when I say that, right, just in case anybody thinks I'm some sort of sex fiend, I'm not. But the point is, you should be having the time of your life. And he was on there to talk about his mental health struggles. Every morning on Sky News, and this is not an exaggeration, every morning somebody from the world of entertainment or sport is on to talk about their mental health struggles. Give over. I often quote the Tony Soprano line from one of the episodes of The Sopranos when he asked, what happened to the Gary Cooper types? Th this agenda, particularly around men, this is my opinion, only my opinion. I don't have the, the academic credentials. I've not looked into it, right? But there is an emasculation agenda. There is, to totally emasculate men. I like the strong, silent type. I've had struggles in my life from time to time. But I do what men of 
your, men of your, would, would have done. I deal with those. I internalise them most of the time, not all of the time. Sometimes I would say to the missus, look, I'm not in the best of form, blah, blah, blah. But I would do the Gary Cooper thing. And I don't see anything wrong with that. You know, I said this before and I got into trouble. Some listeners didn't like it. Oh, talk therapy is really good, Richie. Talk therapy was useful to me when I was in my early teens, my mid-teens. I won't deny that. It is nearly 10 minutes past the hour. Let's take a tune when we return from that tune. My next guest will be hopefully on the line. This is the original Walk This Way from Aerosmith. It's the one without Run DMC. I like the original. Yeah, that's Aerosmith and Walk This Way on the Richie Allen Show. Thursday's edition is 12 and a half minutes after six. Just before we welcome Mina to the show, Anya has sent a message through the app. Thank you, Anya. Let me read this out. It's important before we say hi to um, to Mina. Anya says, Richie, I'm 57 and toxic men are not a new thing. I have had four relationships that involved violence and extreme fear of them, of the men. I was stalked and even chased across fields by a naked stranger when I was out for a walk as a teenager. So my life has been blighted by a fear of men. Now, obviously, I've met some lovely ones too. These idiots going on about sexist slights, etc. should be putting their energy into actual violence and murder of women against women, not petty theories on etiquette between the sexes. I think Anya thinks it's ludicrous to be teaching young boys how to uh, respect women. Very good, Anya. Now, this is important, this, of course. Look, we've talked a lot in the last year and a half about vaccine injury, vaccine injuries, vaccine harms. Right back at the outset of the vaccine rollout, I featured doctors and scientists who said even before the jabs were were being injected into people's arms, we heard from doctors and scientists who said people should not take these jabs. They've not, no long-term safety data, no proper trials, mRNA technology is dangerous and what have you, but a lot of people did take the jabs. Now, my guest this hour um, is coming on to talk about Class Action COVID UK. We'll put the website details, of course, online. And this group is assessing cases of severe vaccine injury. They want to hear from people who think they might have a potential claim. And they're looking at a class action legal case or lawsuit against those responsible for these vaccine injuries. Let's welcome Mina Jew to the programme. Mina, welcome. Hello. Now, did I pronounce your surname appropriately? Is it? Yeah, it's me. It's Mina Dew. Ah, oh, very good. Not Dew. <laughs> it's Mina Dew. Yeah, so I didn't Mina pronounce Jew. it. Yeah, I didn't pronounce. I should have asked you beforehand. You're very, okay. you're very welcome. So tell us about um, class action. Then tell us about the the group. When you had the idea to form it, what happened that you said, right, we've got to do something here? Well, yes. So going back to 2020. Um, Oh, it's it's such a long story, isn't it? But going back to 2020, when Simon Dolan first brought his case out, there was, uh, you know, there was a lot of us that were already awake to the vaccine, you know, farce and all that kind of stuff. So um, I had a look and I've got a law background, although I'm not practicing, so I'm not solicitor, I'm not a lawyer, I do have a law degree. So having looked at this, the statement of claim that they were filing, it just occurred to me that 
because there was no evidence of an actual pandemic and there was no evidence of really COVID being deadly, as deadly as they were saying, you know, no more deadly than the flu. Uh, there was no real evidence of this SARS-CoV-2 having been isolated or any of that kind of stuff. So where there was the actual pandemic and the stats and the numbers were actually in dispute, although we anybody who was questioning that was censored, I felt that it was important to question that because when they brought in the lockdown restrictions and the Coronavirus Act and all of these, these regulations and rules, it was done under the guise of there is a pandemic. And if you look at the... European Convention of Human Rights and the UK's Human Rights Act, if you go through those acts and that and that treaty, you'll see that there's a clause in there where your rights to bodily integrity, your rights, rights to bodily autonomy and your freedom to move and, and, and such like can be restricted if there is, in their words, a threat from an infectious disease or risk from an infectious disease. And I felt instinctively that was the justification for all the measures. And of course, that was disputed in the courts. And then when that judgment came out, they did, in fact, confirm that the coronavirus act, because there were two, there was another case that, that challenged the validity of that act and said that that act should be null and void. But the, when they put it through the courts, the courts confirmed that that act was in keeping with human rights okay it was not in contravention of human rights which was absolutely um technically correct what i felt needed to be challenged was actually is there a pandemic because if you if you're not operating under the pretext of a pandemic then of course where's the justification for the restrictions so when we started this in october 2020 uh, there was no vaccine but we knew it was coming knew it was coming yeah we knew that the vaccines were going to be deadly. There was so much prior, you know, since SARS-1, there has been attempts at producing a coronavirus vaccine. And all of them have failed. You probably know, you've, you've reported loads on, the, on this issue, but um, all of those attempts at producing a vaccine, this is traditional vaccines, all failed because every time they challenged the animals that they injected. So you do a challenge trial, you do the vaccine, it triggers an immune response, which is called efficacy. And then you challenge the, you do a challenge trial. And that means you then reinfect the, you, you infect the animal with the live virus and see if they can, their bodies can withstand the virus having been injected with the vaccine. And what they found was it created a cytokine, what's called a cytokine storm or a, antibody dependent enhancement which means that it creates this art oh, well, i won't i don't understand the science well enough to be able to talk on it but what i do understand is that it creates the opposite effect of what you want the virus the the it produces a very very toxic effect in the body so instead of fighting the virus it makes it more deadly it attacks all of the cells of the body and what they found um consistently in these trials over 20 years was that it killed all the animals, or at least it produced um, organ failure or multiple organ failure, heart and kidneys being the most common. And it's amazing right. that back in mid-2020, Bacti mm -hmm. and Kuldorf and Dolores Cahill and others 
were coming on this program predicting this. They were they, and they had this information, didn't they? Yeah. Mean yeah. they knew, and they said like we will see harms when when these jabs are produced. We will see harms, and we reckon that we saw those harms mm. pretty early into. 2021 didn't we like because they rolled them out just just around christmas time 2020 and in 2021 i was hearing from people who believed that their loved one had had a jab in a care home and had died and that was very early 2021 we um, we had that experience within our family we won't go into details but we had that very experience and it's it, you know it was so obvious you know you, you've you've got these care homes that never experienced an outbreak for the whole of this lockdown, the whole of this, you know, 2020, and as soon as the vaccines were rolled out, they went and jabbed all the elderly residents. And then you've got the first outbreak happening within these homes and then the deaths. It's funny because um, the, the government will, listen, I don't have any time for the government, no more than you do, but mm. they will dispute that and they will say, I mean, even in, even in government, Matt Hancock, the former health secretary, has his own critics. They say people died in care homes in 2020 because you left COVID patients leave hospitals and you put them into care homes and people in care homes died of COVID. That's what they will say. Well, I mean, that, that was early. In, early. That was in the beginning. The beginning, In yeah. the first lockdown when they emptied the hospitals and put COVID patients into the care homes, that's when you had the March and April deaths where you've got that death spike, which was the same time when they were overusing midazolam as you well know. Yeah, yeah. So that was that spate of deaths. You know, that's that spike. But then we got a spike straight after the vaccines. Yeah, that's right. Um, and you must have, uh, um, I'm sure you've spoken to John O'Looney at some stage and he will have told you, you know, he, he's been reporting on this, um, that the, the, the deaths just came thick and fast as soon as the vaccines are rolled out. And this is what we're hearing as well from the, the claimants that are writing in, potential claimants, I should say. Now, Mina, you're, uh, um, case. You're, you're, no, you're no doubt you're watching very closely the, the husband of the, of the BBC um, reporter who passed away, sadly. And they've acknowledged that um, she was killed by an AstraZeneca jab. Lisa is the lady's mm. name. Lisa Shaw, I think her name might be. Yes. Um, yeah. So you're watching that really closely, right? Because that's, um, for anybody who... Anybody that you're connected to, anybody who's come to you to say, yes, I'm interested in a class action. This is what do we know about this, um, about about the plans of this man who was married to Lisa Shaw? I can't think of his name. Excuse me now. Oh, I don't know. I've got to be honest with you, Richard, because I don't have an awful lot of time to, to ch check into all the channels. I'm not up to speed with that particular story. No, fair enough. Um, and, and, and I'm not putting you on the spot, but it's, it, it's interesting because he is planning, well, he's trying to sue, whether it's the government or AstraZeneca, but he's suing. And and that's going to be, I, okay. I would imagine it might, might be one of the first cases that yeah, you know I, that I is think, heard yeah i think actually i know that will be the astrazeneca class astrazeneca action, I, believe. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. that's it and so that there's a there's a group there's a a, a couple of solicitors um peter todd i believe is leading that case um and it's scomo lawyers i think they're going to that i think there's housefield as well there's a couple of so yes they are doing a different case that's astrazeneca purely astrazeneca it's a case against astrazeneca the manufacturer and it's and the case, as far as I understand, is about a defective product. So um, I think you were talking, well, I was tuning into your, your show, but I think you, you had mentioned. So there are indemnity in, arrangements in place for the manufacturers. However, what's not indemnified is product defects. Um, so, I mean, this is not what our case is about, but just briefly to say there's a, an act called 
the, I think it's the Consumer Protection Act. And if you look at Section 2 and Section 3 of the Act, it defines what a defect is and what, what constitutes a product, uh, product defect. So that will be that case. And they're looking at a couple of specific um, side effects, which will have been well known and, and peculiar to the AstraZeneca jab. Our case is very different. Um, and actually, it's not a class action. When we started out, this was a case against government for creating all of the harms. So that would have been not just vaccine damage, but vaccine injury, I should say, but lockdown harms, you know, harms from masking, harms from testing, harms from, from you know, being forced or coerced, all of a loss of business. So it was a collective case and it was against the government who actually implemented all of these and handed down all of these protocols to the medical profession, right? So, so that's what we, so we've had legal advice on that and we've ended up going um, focusing on the vaccine injury route um, for a number of reasons. And this case is, so a class action is where you've got one specified def defendant who can, who can be to blame for everybody's injuries. Now, because of the way that the vaccines are being rolled out, because of the way that the NHS and NHS trusts are all kind of you know, franchises in a way, and you've got one yeah. vaccination centre, another vaccination centre, you've got a GP here and a pharmacy there. You can't bring all of the defendants to blame for all of the injuries, and you can't bring one of them to blame for all. So it will be a specific case against a specific defendant for a specific vaccine injury case. And the, the aim of doing it this way is that it's known as a test case in law. So it, it, is a, it is a single case, but because it has a wider social impact, it means that it can set a precedent, ideally, for other to open the door for other similar claims. And it me makes that process smoother and because who, you, you've tested the point of law yeah, in and, the courts, and, right? And whose case will, will be taken then? Is, is, is the person, do we know who, it, well, you obviously know who it is. Is, is. is that person, is that name being made public? Oh, well, we, we haven't spoken about that yet. We're assessing cases. So we've been receiving emails over the past few weeks um, and we've got, uh, we, we've We've got a number of them now that we, the, the team are going to look at and review and pick out. So the, the aim is to shortlist um, just a handful and take those to uh, a specialist barrister to advise on which of these we should use as the test case. Your, your best right? chance, basically. Now, this, this is CACUK. Dot UK. So it's uh, CACUK.UK. This is the website. Um, what was the response like when you went public with the website? Well, um, actually, before we got the website in place, um, it was all done, through, you know, because we were all censored, weren't we, and, and shadow banned. But it was all through social media. And because yeah. we've got this, we've already had this network, you know, people, everybody knows each other. So thanks to a few people who had a lot, quite a lot of followers, I put a call out on, I had a, a group on Facebook called Outlaw, what still do, Outlaw Medical Mandates, Outlaw Mandatory Vaccination, Beat Propaganda and Reveal the Truth. So this was this the group. And I'd, I'd put the message out on there that we I was inviting people who would be interested in the class action against government. So this is right back in 2020. Um, and I set up an email address, especially for this. And it was just on email, but I got flooded 
you know, with with uh, a thousand and more. And that's when we set up this website because we thought, well, we, we need to have uh, some way where we can provide some kind of support because it was really at that time people were really looking for support for what they were going through. It was just like an assault on the senses with all this propaganda and uh, brainwashing and, you know, bullying and, and all this kind of stuff. So there was a lot of support needed. And, and you know, this, uh, if you want to call it the freedom movement, it, it's I think it's really grown and developed during that time. People have become stronger. People have become more resilient. And, you know, it's a different vibe now. Uh, different you know different interests and things like that but that was what that website was initially about um so yeah a lot of them a, a lot of responses came even before that and then we've we, we changed a few things and and made it um kakuk.uk what you see now is the website and um we you know th- there's a few blog posts and things like that but I, you know i don't get an awful lot of time to put a lot of content out um it, i'm juggling my own life, my work, my daughter, and 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 this and everything else. So, what do you it think? really is. I mean, we, what do you think? Yeah, it's we're worth a small team. So yeah, but you think it's worth a punt? It's really interesting. We're, we're speaking with Mina Do now. Mina is um, centrally behind the website I just mentioned, looking at people who have been injured by uh, COVID jabs and hoping to take one case, a test case. Um, to test this, which is, you, you describe that very well, that's how it works. You take a case to court, you, you, you hope to get a win and then set a precedent and open the doors for others who have been injured or, or worse, or you know, family members who, who have lost people to mm. these COVID jabs to, uh, to make a case against the government and or the manufacturers of these jabs. Really interesting and lots and lots of interest in it coming through uh, the website and through the uh, messages on the app as well. Let me read you this um, from Anton. Friend of his, fit and healthy, 41 years of age, totally fit, had two jabs, four months later died of a stroke. Now you can't Mm. say 100% it was the jab, he says, but he, Mm. his family and a lot of our friends they look the other way and bury their heads in the sand. That's an interesting phenomenon, that, isn't it? It's just awful, isn't it? And I hear this a lot, and that the you know the emails that come through, yeah, and, and that's what that's what we're hearing all the time. All the time, it's, yeah. It's horrendous. So, can we just be clear about the defendant? So, would it be multiple mm. parties, or specifically the manufacturer? It would be the manufacturer, wouldn't it? It would not be the manufacturer. So, it would be. So, this case it has to be the government. About, and, the, and this. So, I just explain how this case is different from Peter Todd's AstraZeneca class action. So, this case is not about the product; it's about the consent. So, we are saying that people weren't properly informed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and a government in, responsibility. Yeah, well, 100%. well it's, it's the Department of Health care profession's responsibility to provide informed consent. And, you know what, and the Mina, rules are pretty strict in the UK. They are. And you know what? There's even a case for the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Agency, to answer June Rain. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, they, they played fast and loose with the law by giving mm-hmm. emergency use authorization to these jobs because central to this is something you said earlier on and I agree with you by the way on the point mm-hmm. that there was no pandemic there wasn't a pandemic mm-hmm. no no where I'm not saying I don't agree with you where I'm a bit undecided is on whether COVID it's, itself existed I've had people on the show in the past listeners have phoned in in the past to say they don't believe the virus itself existed that may be true mm-hmm. or untrue I don't know I remember being very, very sick in January of 2020. 
unlike I was ever sick before. But I'm open to that. But but I, I totally agree with that the, there was no pandemic. There was no justification to shut down society. And there was even less justification to tell people you should have these jabs. What was the mm. average age of a COVID death? Um, accepting just for a minute that, that COVID exists. Um, mm. 82 or something, 83. Yeah, older than the average. Yeah. yeah. But actually, no, COVID does exist. I've had it. What COVID is, is in question. So I can tell you that, um, well, I actually, but, you know, because I think there is there, there is a lot of evidence that suggests that this COVID illness was around from at least September 2019, right? And I believe that my husband and I had it in December of the 2019, 2019 before they said there was a pandemic. But that was, but then after the jabs, so we're going to September 2021, right? August, September 2021. And obviously I wouldn't touch the jabs with a barge pole. Yeah. So I've then caught COVID which I believe was from vaccine shedding, right? And this COVID that I caught was the full-blown COVID of pneumonia. Now, I was fortunate and, you know, I used my faith and I had a lot of support, you know, spiritually and, and things like that. And that's how I got through it. But other people, I mean, I was being urged to go into hospital and I was saying to my husband, there's no way I'm going to go into A&E because if I set foot in hospital and I was, you know, I'm 50, so I was 48, 49, I don't know, I can't do my maths, but, you know, 48, 48 at the time, that age, I would have not come out of that hospital. Well, first of all, they would have insisted on a COVID test before I go in. So I'm not going to take a COVID test either with a barge pole. So I wouldn't have entered the hospital, but let's say I had they wouldn't have let me out. They would have put me on a COVID ward. They would have put me on, you know, end-of-life drugs. Maybe. Blah, blah. They wouldn't yeah. have let anybody visit me. So there was no way I was going in there, right? But I did manage to beat the pneumonia. And I'm telling you now, it was very, very serious. I really was worried for my life. It was wretched, that, wasn't it? It yeah. was wretched, yeah. I, I went to see a doctor, which I never do, in January 2020. I'm not going to make this about me, just very briefly. And she mm. didn't understand what was going on. She was examining mm. me and saying, your blood oxygen is terrible. You're basically blue. And yet there doesn't seem to be any obstruction. There's no sputum. And this is the altitude sickness part of COVID, which you would have experienced yourself, not being able to get a breath, but but not Should always. Brave. Yeah, yeah. In incredible, yeah. really. So look, I, yeah. I, I work on the basis that, you know, something was going on. But, but it's, um, a, it's a bioweapon. So it, it yeah. came from the Wuhan lab. It, it is, I, will, I would bet my life on it. Why, do you know, this is something I know nothing about and, and, and I'm, 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 it's probably not your area of expertise either. But why release a bioweapon that doesn't kill millions of people? That's, I, I've never been able to get my head around that. If they wanted to really do harm, now, I know what you're going to say I, to me. I, I don't think it was released purposely. I think it was a mistake. Right. That, the, that lab, apparently, according to Judy Mikovits, who I was listening to very early on, um, that lab, apparently, it doesn't have the best, um, you know, I think security. it's a level three or level four or something. Like yeah. It doesn't have the best securities that it should have. She so told it, me that It's not as good here. as it should be in terms of yeah. containing a threat. That's I, what I understand. No, that's, that's a good so. point, too. She said the same thing on this program, funny enough, Judy. Um, right. We've got Mina Do on the program looking to take a test case against uh, the, the government, effectively, for, for passing into um, circulation 
dangerous experimental medicines based on essentially a pack of lies about uh, a raging pandemic which wasn't going on. The jobs are doing great harms. Um, class Action Covid UK. You'll find Mina also on Twitter, by the way. Let me give you her Twitter handle. It is at Mina underscore D-E-U. So it's Mina with an M. M for mother. Mina underscore do. Follow her there. C-A-C-U-K dot U-K. Look, I've read lots and lots of different reports from lots of different people about yellow card reporting and one thing Mm. and another. What sort of a clue do we have about numbers of people harmed by these jobs in the UK, just the UK specifically? Do we have any idea? Well, it's impossible to say, really. I mean, I, you know, I, I know that these the yellow card reporting system is probably as good as the VAERS system in the US. And they estimate, you know, a, um, a top level estimate would be, you know, 10 percent. But I think it's more likely to be one percent of those who were actually injured get reported. Um, doctors don't report them. Most people don't know about it. I only heard about the yellow card system, you know, through legal sort of medical friends who I was talking to right early on when we started this. Nobody knows about yellow card. And even if you do report it, I mean, I've had a look at the system and it it doesn't really, I know people who have been through that system and reported, it doesn't give you the means really to report properly on what's actually happened to you you know the kind of injuries that people are suffering these neurological injuries you know these heart injuries what are you saying so hang on hang on this is imp- this is important it's not mm-hmm. set up so that you can get into any detail really is it you can't go into any great depths about what's wrong with you i don't think so i mean no, i think you're only, right yeah there's only so far you can go with that system without you know entering all of your details so i've not been able to go through the system to see what happens if i was going to report something because then i'd have to put all my details and things like that so so this is only i'm just saying what i've heard is that um it's not set up to receive those kinds of um injuries and and then they don't do anything about it they say they do but they don't no and and doctors are supposed to tell people aren't they like when as far as i understand when a doctor presents a vaccine to a patient and I, I know this because I've had GPs on the show, they are supposed mm. to inform the, the, the recipient, first of all, get back to me if anything happens. And then yes. if they do get back to the doctor, the doctor is supposed to make the report as far as I understand. Supposed to, yeah. 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 I mean, anybody can report it, but they, they should do. Yeah, if, if, you, if you tell your doctor that you've had a vaccine injury, they, they, should, they should know to report it. But so many doctors and medical healthcare practitioners don't even know about the yellow card system. There's they don't a, know. There's a so. friend of um, my 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 missus uh, has has a has a friend. She she sees most days dog walkers, and she's been significantly harmed by by the mRNA jabs, and never had any reason to suspect, you know, the government or the medical establishment before that. Mm-hmm. You know, like most people had no reason to suspect them. They didn't know some of the things that we knew, for example. And um, she's been, and she is aghast, Mina. She is horrified mm. at the lack of interest by the medical mm. profession and by the government. She can't get over it. Just can't get her head around it. And, 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 and they have acknowledged to her that the jab she received has given her a very serious autoimmune disorder. Mm. Oh, God. But no, they don't it's, care. It, it's so back to front, Richard, yeah. because, you know, when they talk about, oh, these, you've got to take the jab so you can protect people who can't have the jab because they've got an autoimmune disorder. Why do you think people have autoimmune disorders? Because of vaccines. Vaccines give you autoimmune disorders. That's what vaccines do. Because of the um, 
adjuvants in the vaccines, all vaccines, because of the adjuvants, they trigger an immune response and they, they trigger an, an you know, uh, inappropriate immune response. And then you end up with an autoimmune disease. I fully believe it comes from mostly from vaccines. But actually, can I just correct you for a second? Because Do. earlier when you said that we were doing a... Okay, so this case isn't against the government now. So you asked about defendants. The When we choose which test which case we will proceed with the defendant will be the person the organization the the institution that that administered that mean i'm 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 an idiot it's been a long week i did hear you say that i'm a klutz apologies bang on (laughs) yes the defendant will be the institution which administered the jab absolutely right let's get that clear sorry for my idiocy i did hear you right the first time and that's very important too and it was very important you make this point again because we've been lucky to on this program to have met gp some of whom have you know come very close and in some cases have lost their jobs because from the very beginning they were courageous enough to say no i'm not giving these jobs to people these jobs are not right they've not been properly mm. trialed or tested so there, there were GPs out there who did the right thing and said, no, I, I can't mm. in good conscience do that. You knew not to have it. And, you know, look, anecdotal evidence, we scoff at it a lot of time in the media, but at the same time, you can't ignore it. I'm living in a very, very busy community in, in Salford. I'm near Media City. I'm near the hospital. I'm hearing it all the time. Somebody's mm. been badly hurt by the jab. Somebody. So, no. so we don't know the numbers, but we know yeah. there's something very serious going on. It's happening everywhere. Well, we're hearing it all the time. I mean, my husband, you know, between the between us, there's always somebody, somebody who knows somebody, and and somebody's all of a sudden had a stroke. Somebody's all of a sudden has has got some heart issues. Somebody's never been never been sicker since they've had the COVID jab, and that it's just so common. Mean you. It is, so it is so common. No, I want. To, I, I, we can't forget to do this. You you need funds, right? You're asking for help. When, when the time well, comes to bring yes. this case against the mm. institution which administered the jab and the website, I'll, I'll give the website again, then you can tell us about um, the funding and what you need it for. It's CACUK.UK, taking a test case against an institution, one of the places that dished out one of these jabs that harmed somebody. Tell us about the, uh, the necessity for the funding. You need help. All right, I will do. Um, I just want to say, first of all, this is not, we are not setting out to make an example of a specific, of a particular GP yeah. or, or any person or, you know, this is not a witch hunt against the medical profession. We understand that people have done their best. The GPs did what they felt was right. And, you know, th- there's, it's not going to be a, there's no personal liability here, actually. You know, I know that there's been a lot of groups putting out notices of liability and warning people that, you know, you could be personally liable because remember the Holocaust and, you know, there's, you can't just say I was doing my job. But actually, we have to understand and accept that in UK law, we have a civilised society. There is no personal liability unless the person was going uh, what they call ultravirus. You're familiar with that term. Uh, if they were going ultravirus and and decided to go off on their own um, esteem and, and did something other than what they were trained and, and supposed to be doing under the institution, then there would be personal liability. But as long as you're following the steps and the, and the process and the protocol that you've been trained to do and your institution has told you to do, then it's the institution that is to blame. So that's this is. I just want to make that clear Fair because, um, you know, we, th- there isn't personal liability. It's called vicarious liability, and that is what will save the individual person who made a mistake, right? No, fair um, enough. Yeah. So, funding-wise, look to 
initially when we started out, because of you know, the brainwashing and the propaganda, there wasn't going to be, we, we wanted to take control of the case and uh, directly instruct a barrister. And that was a case against government. There was a whole load of, you know, um, evidence that, that solicitors would, would would not have been open to, to hearing. And so that's, we wanted to get control, be in control of the case, um, being, you know, in this sort of awake um, scene, I suppose. Um, now that it's a vax injury case and it's more understood and there are lots of, uh, you know, lawyers being being open to this. So now when we've spoken to a barrister very recently, well, I have uh, just a couple of days ago, um, he suggested that we would be um, saving costs by going via a solicitor rather than doing it a direct access instruction to a barrister and where we would need to get litigation funders. So that's part, third party litigation funders, apparently. So um, solicitors apparently will have access to funding that they can do. So we can do that. So that's what this is what we're going to be talking about among uh, between myself and the rest of the team is how we're going to do this in terms of funding. So, you know, £350 will pay for one hour of a barrister's time. Uh, £700 will pay for one hour of a KC, uh, you know, a senior uh, King's Council, a Silk, you know, a, a more superior barrister. Um, we will need expert opinions. So we need an expert opinion, a proper arm's length expert opinion from a GP, uh, which will be setting out what the standard of practice would be. The expected standard of practice would be for a GP or a practitioner. Um, whether it was in a GP surgery, a pharmacy or, or vaccination centre. So we need that. And these cost money. You know, you're looking at tens of thousands sometimes for expert opinions. Uh, we will then need an expert opinion on the specific person's injury as to whether that was caused by the vaccine. So this will need a, you know, a, an independent medical expert to provide an expert opinion. They'll be dragged into the courts if this, you know, if this gets into the courts, they'll be dragged into the courts and there'll be a, a huge amount of costs, solicitors, barristers. So, you know, it's going to be a costly case. Look, sh you know, should we should we spend all this money on this case? Well, the issue at stake is do we have bodily integrity? Do we have the right to have sufficient information to make an informed choice? We do. But according to the government, as soon as there's a pandemic, as soon as there's an emergency, as soon as there's some kind of risk that they think it's a public health risk or they say is a public health risk, all of that bodily integrity and informed consent apparently goes out the window. Because the health minister who's in charge, apparently, according to the ministerial code, has infinite wisdom and infinite discretion to decide you know, on the balance of the evidence that has been put before him, which of those, which piece of information he thinks ought to be disseminated publicly and who to disseminate it to. Once he's decided that, so let's say Matt Hancock decided, well, you know, there's this evidence that the vaccines could be dangerous, but there's this, some, th this pharmaceutical company is telling me it's safe and effective. I've decided in my infinite wisdom that it's safe and effective, and I'm going to tell that to everybody in the medical profession. I'm going to tell them that it's 90, 95% effective. So they can control what the GPs and the medical profession hear and regurgitate. 
Yeah, and they want to and hand this power over to the World Health Organization, don't they, for the entire planet? Exactly, exactly. So yeah. we need to get this issue, uh, and the you know the, the purpose of this really is to get this issue discussed in the courts and clarify from third part from from neutral judges clarify that whether or not there's a pandemic whether or not there's some kind of emergency or you think there is because of course you know it could be a real pandemic it could be a fake one each person has got to have the choice and also um they've got to be sufficiently informed and we've got to see that if that doesn't happen there are there are consequences if people aren't given the opportunity to have sufficient information and make an informed choice, there's got to be a consequence. Because GPs, pharmacies, pharmacists and, and various NHS, they, they've got to know, they've got to have the threat that there's going to be consequences if I don't follow informed consent procedures. And informed consent procedures are pretty, um, you know, pretty lax anyway, you know, generally. Well, they are, especially, you... especially around the flu jab, which is usually ineffective. Mm. And uh, mm. well, more often than not, they, they eventually come back and say the jab was for, uh, you know, the, the, the wrong strain of flu. And they don't tell this to people. I mean, I've never no. had a flu jab, but I've been offered one pretty much every year. And I always, you know, just say, listen, give over, will you? Do you even know which strain mm. of flu is is likely to be going around in, in, in the winter. They don't. So they don't get... You make the point very well. They, they play fast and loose again with informed mm. consent. I'm just keeping an eye on the clock because we're, we're kind of rapidly running out of time. Like, we've covered yeah. a bit and I, I obviously will be inviting you back on if and when this progresses further because obviously yeah, I'm fascinated you. by it. The website is cacuk.uk. So it's... Um, Mina's been talking about taking... Uh, a, a case, a test case uh, against um, an institution responsible for administering these jobs, a, a test case on behalf of somebody who was injured to, to, to maybe set a precedent, you know, to change policy going forward because everything she described is exactly how it happened, you know. Um, I, I just, I, of course, I'm going to give you the final word. I genuinely wish you all the very best with it. You said yourself it's going to be difficult no doubt about that it's obviously going to be mm -hmm. expensive i mean th the law is mm -hmm. prohibitively expensive for for most people but it's mm -hmm. not unachievable i don't think mina you know but i'll give you the final word on it and uh just say to be continued i suppose yeah well and if people do want to contribute then if you go the, the actual web the funding page is is separate so it's it's a donor box page but if you go to the website kkk.uk then if you're on a desktop on the top right, there's a button called Donate. If you're on a mobile, which probably about 80% of people apparently are, um, then it's the three lines at the top. Click on that, and then there's there's a button to donate. Um, and the actual donation page is donorbox.org slash kakuk. So that's what the donation is. But, you know, I calculated that I my guesstimate is that a third of the people in this country didn't want the jab. So if if those people who didn't really want the jab if each of those donated a pound, we'd have 20 million pounds, right? Is that right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah, think, yeah. Yes, so have I done my maths right? Pretty, oh, right. pretty, I mean, certainly more than you'd need to uh, to proceed with the case. But yeah, you, they can be very high so, six figures and early seven figures, these cases. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. so my point is the money's there. We have the money collectively to do this case if we want to see it in the courts. And, you know, 
there's never any guarantee of a win. There's no even guarantee. There's so many different factors, as we discussed with the Barrister the other. So many different factors and so many different boxes that need to be ticked. We're not going to proceed with it unless we're absolutely clear there's, you know, something like a 60% chance of winning, right? So this all needs to be discussed before we go forward, but we do need the funds. Best of luck with it, Mina. Thanks for your Thank time you. today. Fascinating to chat thanks with so you. Much. Yeah, thanks so much. You're very welcome. And we'll talk again. Mina do. So cacuk.uk or cacuk.uk for more information on this difficult, it's a difficult one, but why, why not have a go at it, you know? Is, uh, is my take on it. You've been listening to uh, Thursdays, or you are listening even to Thursdays, Richie Allen Radio Show, back with you real soon. To all the listeners who have become loyal customers of Immunex 365 since we launched in October last year, we would like to say a big thank you. Because of your continued support, we have been able to introduce our second product. This unique supplement is formulated specifically to reduce pain caused by joint inflammation. Our organic turmeric-based supplement contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract which massively increases its bioavailability and thereby reaching the inflamed area faster. If you are suffering from joint pain, go to NutraHealth365.com for specific details on how our joint health supplement can help give you relief. That's NutraHealth365.com with free tract delivery. So Christine was on to say that informed consent is very important when you're having certain surgeries. A few years ago, Christine was scared to death with the process that the surgeon and the anaesthetist was telling her about going so far as to say they told her giving her or, or in obtaining informed consent from Christine they told her that she could die or be paralysed and that it was a serious surgery and something she needed to be made aware of thanks very much for that uh, Christine thank you for, uh, thanks for all the comments uh, that came in today by the way yeah you wonder don't you you wonder. A couple of interesting things happened this week. You know the NHS COVID app, the Test and Trace app, which um, we talked a lot about back in the time when it was presented to us by the government. They've basically suspended that now, or they're closing it down. Remember that where... And it, I have to stop myself, because on the one hand, you try to understand those who went along with it. And we do understand why they went along with it because there was a time in our own lives when we trusted governments too and when we trusted the medical authorities or establishment too. There was a time. So that's why I don't go hard on people who are still wearing the masks in Tesco and Sainsbury's and Lidl. You know, they know no better. And there was a time when I knew no better either. But um, you wonder, I, I, I think back to... to some of the madness that went on, people downloading that app. You remember how that app worked? It was an astonishing bit of tyranny, wasn't it? Of dystopian madness. You kept the app on your mobile if you were, you know, enthralled enough by your government that you would download it. And then you might get a ping on your phone to tell you that you came into contact with somebody who tested positive for COVID. Therefore, you need to go home and isolate. And a lot of people in this country did that and didn't think for a minute that there was anything strange about it. A lot of people. I met a guy in Manchester last year, late last year. I was in, in the city speaking to Paul Ripley. 
having a cup of coffee, and I went back to the car park, and a bloke came up to me. It doesn't happen too often. He said, oh, I saw you over there in the in the Costa Coffee, which is where we were on Portland Street. He said, that must be your mate, Paul Ripley. I said, it is. And he said, I know you from the show. I said, nice to meet you kind of a thing. And he'd only recently understood what was going on. And he confessed to me that the thing that brought him back to reality was when he found himself receiving a ping on his mobile phone because he had downloaded the app. And he was told to go home and isolate because he had bumped into somebody somewhere that had tested positive for COVID. And this guy said to me, it was at that point that I realised what an absolute idiot I was to believe it. And then he began looking around online and he found the Richie Allen show. But that was the moment for this bloke, he thought, am I really getting notifications on my phone? Me, a perfectly healthy man, not even a sniffle, not even a runny nose. Am I really going to, to, to obey a message on my phone telling me to go and isolate for a few days? And that was it for him. That was the awakening moment. He saw through the, 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 the farcical nature of it, really, you know. Anyway, that's it for me today. I enjoyed speaking with Mina Do and Dr. Stuart Waiton, PhD. That's uh, it for the week, really. I'm back with you on Sunday morning for Sunday Morning Melodies. The Richie Allen Show will return on Tuesday because uh, this coming weekend is a bank holiday weekend. So I'll be with you on Tuesday at five o'clock. But we will speak again on Sunday morning if uh, Sunday Morning Melodies is your thing, which it might not be. And that's fair enough, too. It's a very relaxing, easy listening music programme, which I enjoy doing very much. So thanks for listening. Look after yourselves and one another and have a fantastic weekend if I don't speak to you on Sunday. Take care of yourselves. Bye now. Closing out with Tom Petty today. Because there's never any harm in that.